And we'll carry on somehow finding out how Jungle Book connects to First Peter up here. You didn't know that Genesis chapter 3 was in the story Jungle Book, did you? There it is. Kind of illusions that just don't happen nearly enough in, uh, in the arts anymore. Did anything good happen in the 80s? Did you think of anything? You think of 80s and you think of all kinds of things that you just kind of cringe at today. But, but, you know, something good happened for me in the 80s. In the early 80s, I came to faith in Christ. I was 17 years old. And it was actually a good time to begin to grow up in the faith in the early 80s. Late 70s, early 80s, there was a couple of things that, that were really um, coloring or flavoring evangelical Christianity. There was this expectancy that Jesus was coming soon. We were looking for Jesus' return, and there was this uh, healthy suspicion of the world. You would hear Christians talking about the world, and the world says this, but God says that. And the world tries to get in, and we didn't really even know who the world was at first, but whoever they were, they were tricky, and they were evil, and you better watch out for them, the world. There's a sense that that, that suspicion of what the, the, uh, the culture of fallen humanity as a whole, and thus the culture and the society and the social pressures of fallen humanity in our country, in our community, in our own circles, there's a pressure that comes from that, that social structure of fallen humanity that is not spiritually healthy. When I was a young Christian in the early 80s, we talked about it as the world. But along the way, later in the 80s and into the 90s, this movement called seeker-sensitive started and other things. And, and one of the things that downplayed a suspicion of, quote, the world, whoever that was. And we begin to more embrace the world and seek how to, how to make outreach into the world instead of that suspicion of the world and its effect upon us. Now, I'm all for outreach into the world. We were, we were missionaries in Africa. That's a whole other side of the world. And yet, there's, it's, it's, it's a both and. A healthy suspicion, a careful suspicion, that not only watches out for, but actually looks in a different direction. And that's what... Um, that's what Peter wants to talk to us about today, that there is a press upon us. There is a pressure upon us. We are pressed to fit in. And I grew up at a time when at least the circles that I was traveling in, the church, they were, they were all over that. They were aware of that pressure that was upon us as believers and watch out for it. And I'm not sure that we've handed down that heritage so well in the next generation. Maybe we have become comfortable and accommodating and maybe a little careless. But um, when we're, when we're pressed, to fest, pressed to fit in, how is it that we can stay true when pressure comes? Because pressure will come. Just like trouble will come, pressure will come. And it'll press to conform us this way and that way. And how will we stay true? When the world is pressing us to conform to its rebellion, when fallen humanity wants to press us and draw us in to follow along in that same rebellion. In one way or another, how can we have the, have the sight 
as well as the courage, the strength of character, the fortitude to stand firm in the midst of that pressure. How will I, when the coils are tightening round about me like that serpent, how will I stay strong inside and not give in to its press? That's what Peter is telling us in the, in the verses that we're going to look at this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. These verses uh, talk about uh, how to stay true when pressure comes. Pressure comes to us in all kinds of ways. It might be, maybe if you're younger, it might be something like this. If I do this, they'll like me. But if I don't do that, then they're going to laugh at me. If I do this, he'll love me. If I don't, I might lose him to somebody else. How can I follow God when my friends and people I care about are pressing me in a different direction? There's pressure to deny our faith, to go ahead and worship except for this or that, what's considered an extreme. Follow the Bible except for this part or that part that we know that we can't accept that anymore, not in our present society. You don't really believe that, do you? These are the kind of things that we'll hear. We're pressed to fit in at work. If I don't go along, if I don't play ball, then I'm never going to move up. I'm not going to advance. You'll never go anywhere. We need, you might hear something like this, we need somebody with your kind of skills, but, but I am concerned, you know, we celebrate a, a very diverse workplace here. We celebrate diversity here in our work environment. I'm concerned that you might not be tolerant and accepting of people that don't believe the same way you do. It's not near necessarily, uh, we're not sure you're right because you're a Christian, because that would be discrimination. But we're not sure you're right because we suspect you might not be tolerant enough. There's a lot of social political pressure on contemporary issues, isn't there? Pressure to go along. Pressure either to go along or at least keep your head down. If you're not going to embrace at least, then say nothing at all. Because if you do, you might be called a hater. How can I stay true to Christ when everything in society seems to press me to conform? How can I have any witness to my faith when society seems so ready to slap me down if I speak up? There is a pressure upon us. And Peter gives some answers to, a, to that pressure. Let me summarize where we've been so far. In verses 1 and 2, we are God's chosen outsiders. We are elect exiles. We are called by the triune God into a transforming salvation. We are, in verses 3 to 5, we're called to a hope that is kept for us, and God keeps us for that hope. It's a salvation that's still fully to be revealed. We, we enter into it, and yet we don't see the fullness of it yet, and yet it's coming, and we are kept for it. Verses 6 to 9, and we rejoice then in that hope, even in the midst of present troubles that seem to deny it. We rejoice in the confidence of that hope that God is even using those troubles to change us for eternity. Long before the prophets predicted this, this sufferings before the glories that will come, the angels presently are watching in so that the choices that we make, they make ripples to people around us, and those ripples reach farther than we realize. That's where Peter's taken us so far. And therefore, because that's true in verses 13 to 16, I would summarize it this way, even before we read the verses. In light of this all-encompassing salvation, in light of all that's been said so far, as those who are saved and kept by God, 
through sufferings which defeat the enemy and which will mature the saints and which will even marvel the angels what God is doing. So then prepare your minds in clear thinking in order to set your hope fully upon God's salvation when Jesus comes so that you won't be merely like the world as you once were, but you will be unique as God's own children. God has, God has started something with us that reaches into eternity. We are his own. He has made us to be unique. He has called us out to transform us, to change us, to fit us for eternity and to live in that, that spiritual maturity that he grows into us, to live that out through all eternity. It'll be very different from now. He's called us to that, and we lean into it already. How will we lean into it? How will we resist the pressures that press in to try so effectively to hold us back? That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Look at the three things Peter tells us to do. There are three commands here in this passage. There are some things that set them up, and then there are three commands. Let me read from verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, do this. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. What we will be is dependent upon who God is and therefore who he is for us. He tells us three things here that, that really compare with Romans 6. Peter says, prepare your minds for right choosing by seeing things as they truly are. What you know determines how you'll live the Christian life. He says to set your hope fully upon the certainty of Jesus' coming and all that that includes. Prepare your minds for in clear thinking what you know matters. Set your hope fully what you believe matters. And then be truly different. Be holy as I am holy. Yield your life then to God's will for us. He says the same thing Paul says in Romans chapter 6. No, then consider what you know to be true. And then because you, you consider that to be true, you believe it, believe it fully, set your hope fully, then you can be. You see, what we know will determine what we believe. What we believe determines what we do always. We do the things because of what we believe. What we believe is always depending on what we know. We cannot believe what we do not know. So Peter starts where Paul starts. Prepare your minds for setting your hope so that we can be already what God is calling us to be. So what Paul describes in Romans chapter 6 as no counted to be true and yield, Peter says something very similar. Prepare your minds, think clearly. Set your hope, trust fully. Take new steps live differently. That's our outline for 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. First of all, he says, prepare your minds. Prepare your minds by thinking differently, both of passing distractions and enduring realities. Prepare your minds to think clearly about what really is compared to what you're told is. 
What really is? Who said it? Can I believe it? Prepare your minds. There are things we need to know. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. That's the preparation. That's the setup. The word is literally, it's to bind up the loins of one's mind. What does that mean? Bind up the loins of your mind. You won't use that kind of terminology anymore. But, but it, when a Roman soldier was on the march, they had their loincloth and it was fairly loose and they want to be comfortable on the march and off they go. But when they get ready for battle, you can't have a loincloth hanging out. It might be a fabric that somebody else might grab. And, and you know, if they grab his loincloth, which is basically the covering around his waist, they grab that and give that a pull. All of a sudden, that soldier is in a very awkward position. Quite at a disadvantage. And so, so when, you, when you're gearing up for battle, when you've, when you've encountered the enemy out there and everybody's getting ready now to go, tightening up the armor, and you'd gird up those, that loincloth. You'd pull it tight and you'd tuck it in. Nothing hanging out, nothing loose. In our, in our vernacular, it would be you know, pulling up those jeans. No jeans hanging down low way around the waist. And This is not the time, lady, for the high heels. I'm not saying women can't wear high heels. But if you're, if you're preparing for action, you wouldn't be wearing high heels, would you? This is not the time for low-hanging jeans or high heels, uh, mentally speaking. Uh, no, this is not the time for skinny jeans. You can't move quickly and freely, right? But, but take that mentally. I'm not saying you can't wear skinny jeans, though I will not. I'm not saying you can't wear high heels, though I will not. Uh, I cannot say, well, just don't wear the low-hanging jeans, okay? Just don't, just don't do that. But, but, but the point is, take that into your mind. Gear up your mind for action. That's what he's saying. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for action. How do you do that? By being sober-minded, he says. It gives the mode of which the idiom is realized, the restraint and moderation, I'm going to quote here, which avoids excess in passion, rashness, or confusion. You can be carried about in passion of, of what you want to see happen, but what you want to see happen might not be connected to reality. And it may not be connected to what God's going to do or where he's leading or calling or where he has directed in his word. It's just how I feel about something and so I jump into it. But I'm not carried away by, by, by passion, by irration, by confusion. Now the avoidance of intoxication that is included in that being sober-minded is certainly part of it. Especially in terms of passion and confusion. But but. Or in a society where we tend to use intoxicants to escape the reality that is. We're going to talk more about that escape here in a little bit. But, but, but we, easily, we easily pursue any seemingly easy fix in order to feel better. He, he says avoid, avoid avoidance. Escape from a tendency to escape. Rather, gear up your mind. You know, grief which we want to escape, the troubles we want to escape and forget about, but grief and grace hold hands. Grief is where grace is really experienced. That's the thing about funerals that keeps me doing them. Otherwise, I wouldn't. Otherwise, it would be a hopeless, miserable time, but God's grace is in the midst of that moment, and every one of us needs to stand in front of a grave because there we see our dependency upon God's grace. Grief and grace hold hands. We shouldn't, we needn't escape because we live in God's reality. We often want to set our minds on other th things. We want to pursue distractions or escape reality, but God calls us to reality. You know, redemption is God facing reality. 
That's what redemption is. God is facing reality as it is. The reality of our brokenness. The reality of life not being what it should be, all that we'd wanted. God faced the reality of humans' humans' ruin so that we can face the reality of God's redemption rather than hiding from it in some captivating escape, some captivating distractions. That's what distractions do. Whatever distraction we choose, and there are many, Whatever those distractions are that pull us out of, it's been such a hard day, I need to escape into something, and off we go. Whatever those distractions are, they easily become captivating. That's why, that's why Netflix allows you to binge watch. And they, they will grab you, and you will be there for hours. There have been evenings where I have stayed up much later than a man of God should stay up. Because I am captivated and I got to see the next episode, the next episode. I'm living in some alternate universe now. It's the universe of Netflix. And none of it is real. But it seems to be a much happier place where I'm not in any trouble, at least. Other people are in trouble, but I'm not. And it's a great place to get away to. And yet we're called not to, not to escape reality, but to face reality in God's redemption. Reality and redemption includes forgiveness. It includes hope. Things will one day be all that they're supposed to be, all that God has always intended them to be. Instead of pursuing distractions that can entrap and enslave, I can set my my hope fully upon Christ's coming. You know, I I cringe now and again when I talk to Talk to young people that are, that, are, that are going into the military and they're talking to the recruiter and they've got all these wonderful things. And the, but the, the recruiter said this and the recruiter said that and the recruiter said that it was going to... And man, I want to tell them, don't believe your recruiter. They lie! Now, uh, somebody knows a recruiter who's the most trustworthy person on the planet and bless you and, and them. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but the truth remains, the, the enlistment contract says for a reason, do not, no other promise, no matter who they came from, that is not expressly written in this contract, is binding or valid. You cannot believe they're basically saying anything your recruiter said. Okay? You can't believe it. You can believe what is officially written. That's the Air Force's promise. God has written us his promises as well. Because as we pass them along from one to another, we get it mixed up too, don't we? We, we think, well, a verse says something kind of like this, and then that gets transposed to the next person, it says something kind of like this, and to the next person repeats it, and it says something not at all like that. And we assume what God promised, and we act upon it. But God has written it, and don't believe anything else than what you see that God has written we can set our hope. We can trust fully in what God has said. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope is a confident expectation. It's not a hope so hope. It's not a I, I, I'm believing enough that maybe it'll come out this way. No, hope is a confident expectation of what God has promised. God has caused us, Peter said, to be born again unto a what? A living hope. That's a hope that is living because Jesus is risen. He is our hope. But it's a hope that is living because it's a hope, it's a, it's a hope that's not only someday going to happen, it's a hope that does something now. It's a hope that is lived in now. It's a hope that matters and makes a difference now if we will set our hope fully upon it. Set your hope fully. Set your hope, trust fully. So we're told to prepare your minds, think clearly. Set your hope, 
trust fully. Confident of what God has promised he is going to perform. We think of hope in many different ways. We, we think of hopes in terms of security, in terms of fulfillment, in terms of what I want to be when I grow up. I'm still wondering about that. We think of, of where, will I, where will my worth really come from? How will it be that I will really make a difference? Where do I set my hope? And we put them in all kinds of things. I tried to make a little bit of a list. I tried to brainstorm some. This is what I came up with. We set our hope in other people's opinions. We set our hope in job advancement. We set our hope in more money, more possessions. Whoever has the most toys wins, right? We sometimes set our hope in finding the right person who will love you faithfully. If I only find the right one, then everything will be wonderful. I'm not going to take a poll on how many of you who found the right one, and yet everything is not wonderful. I'm, I, I don't want to wander off into that this morning. We'll cause more problems. But we set our hope on immediate pleasure, immediate fulfillment. That's why the word used earlier, sober-minded, we are tempted to escape into those addictive patterns of temporary relief, immediate pleasure. Yet they cloud our minds and pull us under the enemy's influence, diminish our ability to show God's glory. We, we set our hope or we find our security in that next great experience. My life will really mean something. My life will really be fulfilling if only I can, whatever it is, some great experience that I'm hoping I can do. We set our hope on staying healthy. We set our hope on, even, even you know, we say this in very innocent ways, a child is born, a, a new baby comes into the world, a boy or a girl, doesn't really matter, as long as it's healthy. What if it's not healthy? What if that little girl is not healthy? What if that little boy is, 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 is born with some things that are gonna, you can see are going to be lifelong issues? Still God is in the midst of that. Still our God is gracious, and that's where that grace is going to be realized and mercy is going to be lived in and lived out right there. It's not as long as they're healthy. We, we cling to health until it finally is dragged out of us at the end. And yet I will be healthy one day. I'm not today. I will be one day. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when I will be healthy. I will be resurrected. This mortal will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. Then I will be healthy. Then I will be alive in ways I've never been alive before. That's where my hope is. The next great experience, we shall see him. And we shall be like him. We'll be around the throne with thousands and thousands of angels and cherubim. And God is seated on the throne. And the Lamb of God is standing there. And he takes the, the scroll. He, he breaks its seals. And then later on, heaven is opened. And the Lord descends and the armies of heaven with him and you and I, the saints he has glorified, will be with him returning to rebellious earth to establish his kingdom upon the earth at the word of his command. Every evil dictator, every evil oppression, crooked corruption and perverted pride is swept away at the power of his word. That's the next great experience I'm looking for. The right person, greater love has no man than this and a man lay down his life for a friend. More money, more possessions. We are heirs of God who will freely give us all things. What could we hunger for? 
Job advancement? You have been faithful over little? I will set you over must. Who, over much. Whoever would be the first will be the servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all, Jesus says. There's job advancement. Others' opinions? How about this? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's where my hope is. That's what I want to hear. Set your hope not on any lesser things. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your confidence there. Trust fully that and him and nothing less than that. Prepare your minds, thinking clearly. Set your hope. Trust fully. And finally... Take new steps, live differently. I was reading Our Daily Bread this week, and Our Daily Bread gave an example of this, um, this, this setting your hope fully that also clarifies your thinking and allows us to live differently. Our Daily Bread was the example of Paul in prison, and he's writing to the Philippians. And he's writing to encourage the Philippians, and he gives them the example of Jesus. He tells them, um, consider others more important than yourselves. Think differently. And he, and he gives the example of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, thought he not something to be hung on to, clung to, to be equal with God, but he emptied himself. And he took on humanity. And he, he yielded himself even to death, even the death of the cross. Because he thought others more important than himself. He thought that he would die so that we could live. And Paul is reminding others to think of others. And while Paul is doing that, Paul is, his mind frame is not in the midst of his prison. It's not in the midst of his own being, being jailed and confined his mindset is instead thinking of others and thinking of Jesus. And you see how that changed everything for Paul? And it enabled Paul to pass that mindset along to change everything because he cared about the Philippians and wanted them to get it. It changed everything for him. And it changed everything for them. And it changes everything for us. It's an example of how thinking differently leads to hoping differently, which leads to living differently. Taking, taking new steps, living differently. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How many of you are intimidated by that verse? Be holy as God is holy. How you doing? Yeah? Be holy, God said, as I am holy. Josh, how's it going? Be holy as God is holy? Really? How can God ask us of that? He knows us. We, we are taking holy and we're limiting it. We're limiting holy merely to God's moral excellence. His goodness, his purity, holiness is bigger than that. Holiness is God's uniqueness. Holiness is God's otherness. Holiness in that way includes all of God's attributes. There, he is omnipotent. There is none as powerful as him. There is none as all-knowing as him. Satan doesn't know the things about you that God knows. Don't let him intimidate you. 
He's not as powerful as God is. There's not a dualism here that who's going to win, Satan or God? No, no, no. There's no contest. There is none like him. That is his holiness. The, 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 the essential meaning of holy is to be set apart, to be unique, to be one of a kind, to be special. Okay? One of a kind, unique. I've given the example before of sanctification or holiness, my toothbrush. My toothbrush is unique. My toothbrush is special. My toothbrush is devoted to a certain use only. It's not used for all kinds of things. It's used for one thing, and one person, and one thing. Okay? My toothbrush is holy. You and I are holy. We are unique. When God tells us to be holy as he is holy, he's telling us to be unique, to be different. Look how Peter uses this this, uh, phrase. This unpacks. He's leading into everything else he's going to say in in this letter. I'm not going to tell you all the ways that you should be holy this morning. I'm not going to tell you all the ways that you should be different. You can read ahead on your own. Peter is going to unpack this for the rest of the letter now. So you can read ahead, grab a handful here, grab, don't take too much at once. We're going to go slow because we want this to soak in. But let me give you some examples of how he uses this in that other sense. In chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, royal priest. You are a holy nation, a people of his own possession. You or some translations have read that historically, a peculiar people, and yes, you are. I missed that translation. You are a peculiar people. We're different. That's what it means. We're different. We're unique. We're God's own people. In chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he gives an example of that new, different um, mindset. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only for the good and the gentle, but also for the unjust. So, so be subject with all respect for evil bosses or masters. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Be different. Chapter 3, verse 9. I'm saving those earlier parts of chapter 3 for Ryan when he's going to be speaking for me. Uh, He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That's normal. On the contrary, you be different. Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So bless when you're reviled. Return blessing upon evil. That's different. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. I skipped that one. Oh, yes, uh, this is for you ladies. Do not let your adorning be external. Everybody does that. And I'm saying you don't adorn. Some of you look, you look beautiful this morning. Thank you. But that's not the essence of your adorning. There's a different adorning. There is a character cosmetic There is an internal adornment that he talks about here. Don't let your adorning merely be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You see, there's a different kind of adorning that we are to pursue. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, this captures the essence of it as well. For the time that is past is sufficient. It's enough for doing what the Gentiles, the nations, what everybody else want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. They are surprised when you are what? 
different. They are surprised when you are holy, different, like God is different. God does not deal with the world on its terms. The call is to be different from the world because God is different from the world. He does not deal with the world on his terms. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, God says, above your thoughts. His ways are different. We're to be different. You know that? That passage, that's Isaiah 55, verse 8. It comes just after the invitation in Isaiah 55, anyone who's thirsty, come to the water. Anybody who's, who's hungry, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. God will give his grace freely. That's different. Why do you spend your money on that which does not satisfy, he says. Come, taste what's different. And then just after this, this way that God's ways are above our ways, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that's where he says, so will my word be, that his promise is sure, that his promise will return. God's word will be realized and it will be fulfilled. That's in that same context where he says his ways are different. His ways are the ways of grace. His ways are the ways of blessing and his ways are what will be true and what will be realized. More gracious, more merciful, more patient, yet more righteous and truly in justice, so that without Jesus there is no other escape. Like I said, I'm not going to unpack all the ways this is true. Peter is going to do that. We're, this is a call to holiness in the midst of an unholy world. First Peter is a call that we would be different that we would be able to be different even when the press is upon us. We will be different even when we're pressed because of God's grace. And by his grace, we prepare our minds. We think clearly. We, we set our hope. We trust him fully. We take new steps. We're willing to live differently. The bottom line is this. I'm yielding my ways to God's ways. I'm yielding my rights to God's right. I'm yielding my preference to God's promise. I'm yielding. And there's Romans 12. We started with Romans 6. We're going to finish with Romans 12. Paul puts a nice little uh, a parenthesis around Peter's message here. Knowing, counting it to be true, and yielding ourselves to it. That was Romans 6. And in Romans 12, Paul says this, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, and may I add, different. In closing, I'm going to tell you a story of a king. He was a, a young king. He was a young royal, a teen royal. And yet so are you. Didn't, didn't he say that we are a, a, a royal nation? That we are God's own son. We are to reign with Christ. We are royalty. This young king, he comes on the throne following a very good and godly king, but he comes on the, on the throne at a time when the other nations around him are ready to close in on him. And he is under threat. He is under pressure. And yet, Isaiah comes to him. And Isaiah the prophet comes to this young king, this young, inexperienced, and afraid royal. And he tells to him, 
This is what God has promised. God is going to, those who threaten you, they are not going to last. That is God's promise, but you need to believe it or you won't stand. He said, I want you to believe it. God wants you to believe it. God says, ask him something so that you can believe, so that you can stand. Ask him something so that you can know that it is true. Prepare your mind so that you can set your hope. And you know what that young king says? He says, I'm not going to ask the Lord. I'm not going to ask the Lord for help. I'm not going to call out to him. I've got my own plan. I'm setting my hope somewhere else. And disaster came upon him. Disaster came upon the people. There's the ripple effect again. And yet in the midst of that moment when he said, I will not trust the Lord, ask from him a sign. That's when God gives the promise. Hear, O house of David, God himself will give you a sign. You know what the sign was? We have an unbelieving, unrighteous king on the throne, a king in the house of David. This is the sign when God's king has come. the, The virgin will be with child and will bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us, because God is with us. And yet even before the child is this old, and now he goes to a child that's going to be born immediately, those kings whom you fear are going to be destroyed. That's King Ahaz, a young teen, royal in critical time. You might be young. We are royal. We are pressed. There are things that we fear. It is a critical time, and we must believe. We will only believe if we prepare our minds Think clearly. Will we discipline ourselves, devote ourselves to take in God's truth so that we can live in light of it? Will we prepare our minds and think clearly? Will we set our hope trustfully? Will we be willing then to take new steps and live differently, stepping into that which we've known and begun to believe? How God uses you in his eternal purposes, how we glorify God for his eternal purposes. All of that hangs on and is fueled by preparing our minds, setting our hope, living new. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word that calls us to trust you alone. That you are the one that we can trust, no other. Your word is what we can trust, not any other present view. Lord, would you give us the the clear-mindedness, the discipline to take your word in, as, as, as Peter will tell us, to desire the sincere word that we would grow by it, to hunger for it. Would you give us the courage as well, Lord, to believe to be willing to trust you fully, trusting you alone rather than anyone else, anything else that we might put our heart's desire on. Father, would you then, in that faith, fueled by your truth, Lord, give us the courage then to step out in a new step, in a new direction, to something that you call us to, that in that we would glorify you. Lord, that's our heart's cry. Even as we, as we now present, Lord, as we, as we present this offering before you, 
As we include in that a a prayer request, a, a testimony of praise to you, Father, would we give ourselves to you in some new way, trusting you, believing you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.